Dotnet Rocks episode 865 with guest Hendrik Lush. Recorded live Monday, March 25th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. We're here again. It's it's springtime when we're recording this, March 25th. And you know what's coming tomorrow? What's coming? More freaking snow. No, because it's spring here on the West Coast, and I'm coming to you in a few days, too. So I'm like, oh, no, do I have to go back into winter? Yeah, it's snowing in Washington, D.C. right now, and oh, it's wow. headed this way. I don't know how much it'll be, but damn. <laughs> You're ready for this to be done, are you? <laughs> Uh, you know, remember back when when we thought the world was warming, and you know we had green Christmases, and everybody was like, "Oh, no more snow." And no, it turns out there's a lot of freaking snow. Nice. Oh well. oh well. I'll bring my my heavy jacket when I come to your place. All right, cool. Looking forward to that, buddy. It's time for Better Know Framework. Awesome. So what do you got today? It's called Better Know an IDE. Oh, really? Yeah. We uh, I I I went looking for um something that I didn't know existed in Visual Studio 2012, and that is the quick launch. Something you did, you, you went looking for something you didn't know existed. Yeah, How did I, you know to look well, for Well, you know, you I just know. went looking for, I searched on things like Visual Studio 2012 tips and tricks, right. you know, that kind of thing. And I landed on a blog post by Zane Nabulsi. Ah, we know Zane. We know Zane. Yeah. And um, he's talking about the quick launch bar. So if you've ever used Slick Run, Oh yeah, yeah. You know that there's like a keystroke, like Control Q, that can bring bring you to this quick launch bar in in Windows, and then you can set up magic words that uh, run particular programs or anything like that. Well, it's kind of like that, but it's not really launching apps. It's really there to help you find things in Visual Studio that, particularly keystrokes, that you can't remember the keystroke. Um, one of the examples Zane has, you, first of all, you click Control Q, you're up in the quick launch bar in the upper right, and you type, you, you can't remember what the keystroke was to remove white space. Right. You know, or view the white space. And so you type white and you get a list immediately of those um, edit, uh, you know, menu options with the, with the keystrokes. Huh, cool. So it helps you basically find things that are buried deep in Visual Studio and uh, it's great. Tinyurl.com slash VS2012quick. Know it, learn to love it. That's cool. Yeah. I did not know that was there. I didn't either. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 828, and that is the one we did at the Better Software Conference during the road trip in Orlando. All right. And you remember, we, we actually, that was two smaller interviews that we put together into a show that sort of spoke overall about fast development cycles. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the fellows we spoke to was a guy named Jesse Dowdle. 
who uh, had, they were getting up to incredibly high development rates. And I, I had lost track of this comment chain because it actually is a series of comments. But uh, let me read the first one here and I'll talk a little bit about the other bits. Uh, it was Steve Pascone who said, uh, hey, Jesse, considering your blazing approach to dev cycles, because they were literally doing several builds a day, right? right? This very high-speed DevOps mindset. Mm. What does your source repository's branching hierarchy look like? Simple bread, just for quick feature ads, this is everyone perform a minor check-in, check-out off the master. And this is a really awesome question, because when you're talking about the kind of velocity that uh, uh, Jesse was talking about, you know, you almost can't work from the master because there's so many people moving stuff so quickly. If you're doing to do several check-ins that result in builds every day, you know, you, you pretty much need to work in your own space. At the same time, if you don't get back to the master, you're going to be in hell, right? You're just going to fracture the whole code base. No one's ever going to be able to roll things together. Right. And Jesse himself responded to Steve, and I want to read this piece as well. Uh, Jesse says, a short-lived personal or team branches are created off master and are tracked by Jenkins, which was a, a management tool, in such a way that the green builds on those branches are automatically merged down. So he's always pushing them back into the master. We keep a, quote, drift score on the dashboard around the office so we can see how many commits take place between each successful integration. Our target is that all branches make it to the master at least daily. Hmm. So the really interesting philosophy here that, okay, we allowed you to take a branch, do your thing, but by the end of today, you're going to be back on the master again. Yeah. And that we're going to know how many commits you've made on your branch before you got back to the master because they know the more commits you do, the harder the integration is going to be. So I could see in a, in a you know normal world of working at this speed, you branch, you maybe take one commit to to feel around for it, and then you push back to the master. But you get several commits in that's going to set alarms off. Mm, yeah, but it just helps this whole conversation piece here, and in, in fact that show as well was really helping me dealing with what are the sort of consequences of getting to this very high speed of development velocity. So I appreciate. Steve Pasco, your uh, your question was exactly something a lot of other people were thinking as well, and, and Jesse answered it. So I'll get a .NET Rocks mug out to you. Thanks very much for your input. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on the mobile apps for iPhone, Android, and WinPhone 8. Built yeah. by our great friends at Datatom Enterprises. You can write comments there, and they appear on the website. The shows get tracked. It's awesome. People are loving it. Go grab it today. Yes, and uh, Richard, we're going to be at NDC again this year in Norway, Oslo, Norway, the Norwegian Developers Conference. Yeah, we've been there a number of years in a row now. They always put on such a cool show. I love the space they're in. Yeah, the Oslo Spectrum, it's great. They've got a full stage, like, you know, rock bands come and play there. So they've sure. got the band, like, set up with all the lights and stuff. I usually get to play a few songs, and that's fun. But really, it's all about the content. Yeah, and the way they build their rooms, because it's actually a stadium, so they hang the stages sort of off the side of the, the building so that the seats are all normal, but the stage is sort of floating, and there's there's eight of them, and the ADD room. Yeah, the ADD room where you have a whole bunch of screens of every uh, session going on, and you get headphones, and you can switch the audio between rooms, so you can watch more than one uh, uh, talk at once. And the lineup of speakers this year is, heck, a lot of folks from .NET Rocks. Uh, Nick Molnar, the guy from Glimpse, is going to be there. Yeah. Uh, as well as our friend Venkat Subramaniam. Yep. 
Uh, and lots of other folks you've seen, folks I want to see also, folks I've always wanted to see, Jess Humble. So, you know, I've been getting into DevOps. Jess mm-hmm. Humble is one of the ThoughtWorks guys that's really led the continuous delivery uh, DevOps movement. So I'll be there to check out those sessions for Anthony sure. Anthony Vanderhorn is going to be there also. Rob Sullivan, uh, um, Robert Martin, of course. Of course. Neil Ford. Uh Christian Wenz. So this is a it's an all star lineup. And Benjamin Mitchell, I haven't heard from him in years. He's oh, gonna cool. be there. surfacing at NDC. Yeah. I'll have to get him on the show. So we'll be recording lots of .NET Rocks episodes. I suspect Carl will be playing. I suspect I'll be acting like a nut at the attendee party. They always throw an amazing attendee party. Yeah, it's great. So. NDCOslo.com. Go check it out. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month, offering a free 10-day trial or 200 minutes. They offer a wide range of developer training courses, including iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything you can think of on the Microsoft stack, including lots and lots of courses on Visual Studio and TFS. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest. Hendrik Lösch is a German consultant and developer of Saxonia Systems AG. His focus is on software development for industrial and medical companies. He also speaks about test automation on conferences or user groups and wrote the ebook Testing with Visual Studio, a guide for developers. Welcome, Hendrik. Hello, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks for being here. So Visual Studio 2012 has some new uh, tools in terms of testing that we haven't really hit on all that much in .NET Rocks. Tell us about it. Well, compared with Visual Studio 2010, a lot of things happened under the hood. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the first thing you will see when you open Visual Studio and start testing is a new Test Explorer a small window, uh, you see all your tests running and with their results and so on. In 2010, you had four different windows where you get information about the tests you have, the test information, the detailed information and so on. So I think uh, in 2012, it's much better now with um, only this window. Mm-hmm. And other things I really like is that uh, the tests are now much faster than before. One of the main disadvantages in 2010 and before was that all the files and so on was copied into a known folder. And uh, so the tests run were really slow compared to frameworks like NUnit and XUnit. In 2012, they changed this. You have... I, I will not say you have a completely new framework under the hood, but uh, the old framework um, is just used if you uh, if you create rapid performance tests or load tests, and when you're just doing unit tests, then you will I think you will not see a difference in speed between an unit and Visual Studio. So. That's uh, the first things you will see when you start testing. Uh, another nice thing, I think, is the fakes framework. It's a mocking framework, if you want to use this word. A lot of people don't like the word mock. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, with fakes, you can you can automatically implement interfaces 
like you did it with molds. I don't know. I don't know if you know molds. Uh, let's talk about them. Um, molds was um, a framework created by Microsoft Research. You can't use it or you used it to uh, create implementations for interfaces automatically or to create fake classes. And molds was basically transferred, transferred from a research to the real implementation in Visual Studio 2012, which is now fakes. And with fakes, you can, uh, you just have to click on a reference in a project, in a test project and say, okay, create me a, a fakes DLL for this. And huh. then you have, um, you have classes, uh, which implement interfaces. You have, um, so called shims or shimes. I don't know. No, I don't know yeah. how it's shims. Okay. Yeah. So if you create these DLLs, you have shims and stubs. The stubs just uh, implement interfaces and the shims um, use a runtime interceptor to change the implementation of actual classes. So you can basically override every method you have for each instance if you want. So from moles to fakes. So how is is that pretty much where you would start with... Um with a, a component uh, and you said build a fake for a component or for a class or at what level do you, do you create fakes? Um, when you want to do test driven development, for example, then you usually have to create interfaces to, well, separate the different logic parts of your application. So, one of the main aspects of unit tests is that you do not, you should not use. Let me, let me ask it a little differently. I think you misunderstood okay. the question. So I want to create fakes. Do I do that to a CS file or do I do that to an entire project? Uh, what You do it for a DLL. Okay. So, so if you have a third-party DLL or if you have a DLL of your of the .NET framework, then you just click right, say create a fake DLL, DLL, and then you have uh, an you have a duplicate of this original DLL, but you can override all methods with delegates or with lambda expressions. So I'm not sure how that works in Visual Studio. Do you? What do you add a reference to it? Do you add a new item? How exactly does that work? So if you want to create a fake DLL, mm -hmm. DLL uh, you usually have all your DLLs in the reference list of your project. Mm -hmm. And then you click on one of these references and say, create a fake DLL. Okay. DLL. So then it all, it, it makes a copy of your actual implementation wow. and inside of this copy you have fakes for all the actual classes and you have implementations for all interfaces these interfaces are implemented as stubs for example if you have an i repository then your stub will be stub i repository got it and yeah, so looking at it now, to... you can even add uh, fakes to the .NET Framework DLLs, yes. it looks like, 
although I don't know why you would ever do that, but just pulling up Visual you, Studio, that's the first thing I did. For example, if you want to test uh, SharePoint applications, then you need uh, fakes. Otherwise, you can't uh, separate your implementation from the rest of the application. Sure. So, Henrik, do you end up using this against every uh, library in your app that you've built and then testing each one of them independently? Um, Microsoft says on the MSDN, you shouldn't use uh, fakes too much. So, yeah, uh, yeah, too much is kind of vague. (laughs) Yes. Um, Usually you have such frameworks like MockU or um, Fake It Easy, RhinoMox. Sure. You, right. you have these, you have these uh, very fast little um, tools where you can say, okay, if the safe method is called, then don't do anything. But if the load method is called, then return a list of whatever. Right. And if you can do this, then you should do it. You shouldn't use uh, shims for everything you could. Because shims are quite slow. They use this runtime interceptor, which changes the code during right. runtime. And so um, the tests get quite slow. Yeah. And the goal here is to make tests absolutely as fast as possible. Yes, it is. But it also speaks to why do it this way at all? Why not just strictly stick with a mocking framework? Um, for example, each of these uh, free mocking frameworks Mm -hmm. they can't uh change the new operator the new keyword right so if someone doesn't use an interface he cannot replace the functionality of a class so if you have um if you have no interface for the class you want to uh, remove then you have to use the shims right because then you can also you can say um each instance of this class have to use my method instead of the real one. Mm. That would be one of these uh, situations where you can use it. It also or, looks like you have to, if you want to intercept anything, you have to write all that code to do the interception, don't you? Yes. If, uh, For example, when, when you use MockU, you, you have to say uh, set up uh, you ha- you have to call a lot of methods and say set up the load method and then return this and this and you have to create an own instance of this mock and so on. With stubs, you can say only uh, well new stub i repository and then you have one. It's more like a dummy in this place. Right. Uh, it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Okay. I- yeah, and I g- I get this idea that I want to mock wherever I can. But then I'm going to have to go in and shim where I must, like the spots where the mocks just can't do the trick. That's right. Yeah. And and but in the goal, it is getting back to everything needs to be tested here. So I mean, it's clearly it's like you can't just drop in, run a testing framework, and you're done. There's a lot of thinking here about the best way to test each one of these pieces. So let's compare. Let's compare Microsoft Test N Unit X Unit. The stuff that uh, comes in the box, what what are the differences here? Well, that's a large question <laughs> with a lot of answers, <laughs> and uh, it gets quite religious. 
religious. Yeah. Um, so it's I have to a time be a bit bomb. <laughs> Just like yeah, that. I have to be a there. bit. I have to be a bit careful <laughs> what I'm saying now. Now, um, Roy Usherov once wrote in his blog, uh, MS Test is the IE6 of testing frameworks. Sounds like Roy Usherov. Yeah, Usherov was prone to those sorts of statements. Yes. Um, so Roy wrote this um, in his blog, and he also made a video uh, down in this uh, post where he was driving a car and also said, oh, MS test isn't so good for unit tests, I will say in this way. Um, the reason is or was that, like I said before, MS test was quite slow in Visual Studio 2010. It also... Um, wasn't so easy to use like in unit x unit mm-hmm. um, when it comes to for example parameterized tests or data driven tests where you have a small test but uh, you use different kind of input data and get a high code coverage for example if you have a comparer um, implementing i comparer it has only one method compare huh? who has guessed this mm-hmm. who has guessed this and compare will return one if the first parameter is larger than the second one it returns minus one if the first is smaller than the second one and zero if both are equal for the small implementation you would have to write three different tests with data-driven tests, you can write one test and define three different sets of input data. If you do this with an unit, or you can do it with X unit if you use uh, the X unit extensions, then it is only some small lines of code. With MS Test, you you get um, with MS Test you have to create a file, or you have to use a database. Then you have to deploy these things. You have to use a test context class to get in some way your data. You have to convert it into the uh, data type you need, and then you can start testing. So a feature which should help you to reduce your code actually make it more complex. Right. (laughs) So in this case... uh, I can totally understand if someone says uh, that this isn't good. Sure. But um, the when you look a bit deeper, you see that there are two different perspectives. Um, and unit and X unit, they are unit testing frameworks, like the name says. But um, the test implementation or the test framework in Visual Studio is more from the perspective you want, or let me say it another way, Mm -hmm. the testing framework in Visual Studio is more from a perspective where you want to automate um, manual tests, for example, or where you write your tests after the implementation. Mm-hmm. At least it was until uh, 2012. In 2012, uh, they changed it a bit. <clears throat> but with uh, 2010, you had such features where you can say, okay, uh, this is my class. Please create test methods for all public methods. And then you got a test class with a lot of 
empty tests. Microsoft uh, concentrate more on these features to do some kind of automated testing or to reduce the amount of regression tests um, a tester has to do. For example, the coded UI tests, where you record your actions on the UI and then you can play it back whenever you want. Where the tests in X unit and N unit, they are focused on speed. They try to reduce uh, the need for external resources like database and so on. So when Roy Osharoff says MS test isn't a good unit testing framework, then he is right because it wasn't a unit testing framework before. Right. It was more a test automation framework. Which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a question of how well it does that. I, You know, I'm still struggling with, do I really need to use N unit and X unit? Isn't X unit sort of the superset? Um, uh, actually, they are two different frameworks, but um, the term X unit framework is often used to describe all kinds of unit testing frameworks. Okay. And one of these unit testing frameworks has a name X unit. Yeah, just to make <laughs> it worse. I, mean, I guess we could call it X unit dot net. <laughs> right. Yes, that's right. But I also often miss the dot net in X unit. <laughs> okay. So can you t sort of define the difference between N unit and X unit dot net? The differences are, for example, xunit has this xunit.net has, um, compared with nunit, xunit.net has a smaller set of functionality, but it is highly, or, but it is easy to extend. So okay. you have a lot of um, extensions like the xunit.net extensions library where you get theories. So parameterized or road tests um, or you can use uh, you can use it together with auto fixture there was a great video cast for, of Mark Seaman where he showed the string calculator kata using X unit and auto fixture and with this tool auto fixture you can get a quite small range phase. So you do not have to do so much work to get the um, precondition for your test. Okay. Any any unit, on the other hand, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, extensible like X unit is, but it has a lot of functionality like um, actions is something new where you can say, okay, please execute all these things before your test method is uh, executed or all these things after the test method is executed. Or you have also a lot of ways to create these data-driven tests and so on. So uh, xunit.net and nunit, they are quite similar, but they have also... Um, different ways to handle something. So if you just use the basic set, then NUnit, XUnit, and also MS tests, they are quite the same. You can right. create that, a And that's what I was thinking. It's like all three of these things on the surface look like they can do the same basic unit tests. That's right. You can create a test class. You can create test methods. And when you start your tests, they will be executed. 
So in NUnit, they seem to have done more with data-driven testing, that there's deeper features for data-driven testing than there is in the others. When you use XUnit extensions, then you have also these data-driven tests. Okay. They are called theories. But you have to use another library. It's not in the basic set of functionality of uh, XUnit. So it seems like NUnit might be easier to get started with because there's more functionality built in. But long-term, xunit.net, because of its extensibility model, can do everything that NUnit can do, and then more if you can deal with the extensibility model. If there is someone who will extend it this way, yes. Okay. Or or if you're willing to sit down and build the extension yourself, which you clearly could do. Yes. I mean, isn't there extensibility features in NUnit? I know it's not the same, but, you know, you do have custom constraints and and there are add-ins. I would like to compare it with MS Test. Um, in MS Test, all the attributes are sealed. You can't okay. extend any of these attributes. And that's one of the disadvantages Osharov also mentioned in his blog post. Which seems like a dumb um, thing. Like, there's no reason for those things to be sealed. I don't understand it, why they do it. <laughs> yeah. You have also uh, another problem when you try to create a larger test environment with MS test because it's not so easy to inherit from a base class. Okay. If you, if you have a base class with some basic functionality where you group all the things you could, might need in any of your tests, then this class shouldn't be in another project because it can't be referenced over uh, different projects. So yeah, the, so you end up with limiting reuse. Yes. Which is, you, you know, you, we don't want to keep writing these tests every time. Exactly. Where in NUnit, I know a lot of people, they define a basic uh, test class with a basic setup, and each other test class extends this class. And so you, you can uh, reduce the amount of code you need for each test. With MS test, it is possible, but sometimes you come to a limit or you come to a problem with this. For example, when the base class is in another DLL, then the test runner might not execute your tests. It doesn't do it always, but sometimes. I'm not sure why it does this, but I stopped working on this because it was annoying. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not funny. Like, I, yes. I've got to be sure that when I fire off a test suite that everything runs. That, that there's no excuse for that. That's right. And that's another problem with this data-driven test and MS test. When I use a file, I'm not sure this file is also always deployed. You have to use these, or you had to use. With 2012, it is not necessary anymore. But in 2010, you had to use the attribute uh, deployment item and to define where your files have to be deployed. You can also use a settings file and so on, but usually you used this attribute. And this right. attribute was, or this attribute is a bit dangerous because if it had because if it deployed a file once, it will not do it again. So if you change something inside the file or if you delete it, then you have a problem. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's serious. Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? 
Ah, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time for me to trade in my Prius for a snowmobile. (laughs) (laughs) Get tired of the snow, my friend. (laughs) Yeah, actually, it's time to announce a winner uh, for the uh, Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection that we're giving away right now to a member, a lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before we do that, some props to Telerik Test Studio an automated testing tool that offers a codeless and productive way to test any application, Ajax, Silverlight, WPF, MVC, Ruby, and Java. Test Studio seamlessly integrates with Microsoft TFS to simplify the collaboration among QAs and developers. In addition, Test Studio can also interact with any other file-based source control system. So, want to give it a try? Download a free 30-day trial at Telerik.com slash DNR testing. Awesome. So who's our winner today, buddy? Our winner is from Johannesburg, South Africa, and it's Yossi Naiman. Congratulations, Yossi. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Yossi. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members. We give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection every show, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. And we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, Hendrik, what would you buy? 5000 I think I would buy such a hybrid uh, tablet computer from a large Japanese company. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say the name because I don't get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) There are some interesting, I I really think Win8, well, and the tablet movement in general has sort of exploded hardware, that it's gone in all kinds of crazy directions now with exactly what is the perfect form factor, what what do you get most productivity out of. Yeah. and I, and I were, you know, the hybrids always play this game between I, being the best of all worlds or being the worst of all worlds. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It's tough to know which way, which one, but it's hard to spend five grand on one because they, they don't, they're not that expensive. Um, I think my wife will have another one. So we, we can both play together. There you go. Get two of yeah. them. That's the answer. That is the answer. <laughs> Just like we were looking, we priced out, we figured out we could get like one of every mobile device, one of each phone and one of the major, one of each of the major tablets comes out to about five grand. I don't know what I do with all that gear, but boy, it'd be fun. (laughs) Toys for boys. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Hey, Henrik. You've done this for a number of years now. You've seen the, the sort of impact that bringing testing into a company has. I've seen some really positive, some really negative things when, when we get serious about testing inside of a of a development team, like developers that like doing testing somehow inferior to developers that are are just building new code. Uh, how do you bring this in in a way that it is consistently successful? You mean how do I convince developers to do testing? Well, I guess that's part of it, yeah, and and really building out a, a real testing team, like getting serious about quality. When I started with TDD, I had this impression that I have to write more code right. than before. So that's the same with, with all kind of uh, tests. If you write your tests after your implementation, then it's even worse because you have the job done and then you have to test. Yeah, you're just slowing down the process. 
That's right. And with um, test first or TDD, you write your test first and then you define what your implementation shall do. And a lot of people don't see the advantage at the beginning, but when you were saved the first time by your tests, there is such a moment when you think, oh, that's the way I should work with. For example, if you have these tools like NCrunch or Mighty Moose or so, uh, these tools execute all your tests while you are working. So you do not have this moment where you code and code and code and after half an hour or something, you click on compile and you do not see what your, you do not see what the code you wrote actually did to your implement what the code you wrote actually did to your application. So when I try to show people the advantages of TDD or of automated testing, I also always use such a tool which executes all my tests during implementation to show them you know exactly when you did something wrong. Yeah, no, I, I'm looking at NCrunch and this is... What a great idea. Just the same way that Visual Studio itself is constantly testing syntax so that it puts little squiggly lines under and so forth. Just being able to, as you're writing your code, the tests are being run. I was at an um, advanced test-driven development course of Robert C. Martin in February or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had this example. In the old days of C++, when you compiled, you had the situation there were two errors. And then you changed one thing and you had 100 errors. And then you changed <laughs> something and you had 60 errors. Wow. And you never know why all this happens. And the right. same is with, with testing. Now we have these tools who, which say as you can compile or you can't compile without even compiling. And uh, with testing or with automated testing in the background, you have the situation where you know that breaks something and that, did, that didn't. And if more people see that, then I think more people will use unit test to test their application. And after that, we can speak about uh, acceptance test-driven development, where you start at your UI, where you don't write only um, unit tests, where you write system tests or integration tests before you do anything else. Wow, like doing that level of testing first or setting up those tests before you build anything. Yes, there's a great book, um, Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. I'm sorry, I don't know uh, who's author, but um, it describes how you can how you can implement your whole application and be always sure that it will work. You start, for example, with just a WPF window. That's what I'm doing all the time. I'm working with WPF. So you just implemented a WPF window and you check if it is still there after five minutes. Smoke test. Okay. And with, with this small test and this small functionality, you can set up your build. You can set up your um, CI build, your nightly builds, and so on. And you can, you have always some code you really need for your application. You do not implement something twice. Okay. And after this, after your build works fine, you 
do the ne next thing. You ride a spike where you implement everything from top to bottom for only one requirement or for only one user story. So and taking then that vertical have, stripe through the whole system. Yes, exactly. And then you have um, the basic architecture of your application and you can start with implementing everything else. You always implement first your acceptance test, for example, with um, SpecFlow. I think SpecFlow right. is great. Yeah, I love uh, SpecFlow. It's very cool. Uh, you can combine this great with uh, coded UI tests of Visual Studio. It is um, improved now with Visual Studio 2012 because um, in 2010 you had this, uh, well, the coded UI tests always record what you do in the UI and they create a class UI map in the background. It's generated code and we all know what generated code means. <laughs> it is quite messy. Generated Ugly code. Uh, generated by a tool. <laughs> generated by a tool. And um, in Visual Studio 2010, you didn't have any uh, editor for this code. If you changed something, you didn't know, well, if it, is it there after I generated some new code? No idea. But now with 2012, you have an editor for the for such things, you can see all the, the steps you recorded and so on. And so it is quite easy to use and combine with SpecFlow. Yeah, because there's also an art, you know, they say the SpecFlow is really a BDD tool. And then we're talking about this test first design as a TDD approach. So and you get sort of religious wars between your BDD or a TDD. Right, where do you yes. fall on this? Um, as more unit testing I do, as more I like BDD. <laughs> okay. Um, I spoke to Christian Hasser. He is uh, one of the guys of TechTalk who do uh, or who created uh, SpecFlow. And he said to me they see it more as an acceptance test-driven tool than a real behavior-driven tool. Right. I mean, it makes sense. This is... SpecFlow is about business, getting the business requirements into the code, which is the ultimate measure of acceptance. If you're meeting the business requirements, they're going to accept that. That's right. And what I see in this point is um, we we do not we shouldn't stick too much to these definitions. Yeah. Which tools? What? Um, more important is for us why should I use these tools? And for example, even I didn't talk so good about MS test the last half an hour. I use it daily because it actually meets all the requirements I have. Because I, I work in an environment with 30, 40 developers, 10 testers and so on. And it is much easier to, to implement all my tests in one environment than doing it in three or four different. And what I mean with this, we have testers who can record their work on the UI, and these can be used by developers to create, for example, the accept and the automated acceptance test. Okay. And then we can um, we can combine these with uh, unit tests and so on. And with MS Test or with Visual Studio, you get the whole test pyramid. I'm not sure if you. You know these and this. No, um, the, the the test pyramid. 
The test pyramid is, um, again, um, my code defined the test pyramid. It's some kind of uh, description of different phases or different levels of tests. You have at the bottom the unit test. They are large in number, but small in code. So uh, you can execute them very fast and they should be the most or the most tests you have should be unit tests. On top of the unit tests, you have the integration tests. These test um, the communication between your application and external resources or between components, uh, and they are slower to execute than unit tests, and they are much more complex. But you also need them. In numbers, they shouldn't be so much like unit tests. Right, but they not are. as many. And uh, on top of the integration tests, you have your system tests. And these system tests should only be um, the most important test cases. Or other, on another way, you should only automate the most important business cases um, on system level. As an example, in our project, we have a lot of input fields and all these input fields um, validate the string you put in, you, you write in. And the tester get crazy if you have, has always to check if each and every input is possible or not, then that, this would be something you would automate. But you will not test every uh, control you have in your UI because these tests are very slow and they break easily because they test nearly each and every part of the code inside your application, which is needed for a small set of functionality in your UI. So if you ch change something at the bottom, the whole thing at the top breaks together. So Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component 1. Smarter components for smarter developers. Would you put the sort of uh, business acceptance tests even above that? Um, that's a discussion. When I spoke with a tester, he said everything what developers do are unit tests. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Thank you very much. Everything. Everything is unit testing what developers do. Now, um, I would say system tests and acceptance tests, when we automate them, it's usually the same. It is, uh, it is always difficult or, um, when it comes to testing and to definition of different types of tests, it gets very confusing. That mm -hmm. starts with unit tests. What actually is a unit we test? Usually it's a class and a method. Right. That's something we can agree with. But then yeah, it's a nice unit of work, right? That makes sense. But what's with the classes which are used by the class 
we test with our unit tests? Do we have to mock them or do we use them in our test? Because then some people say it's a component test. <laughs> oh, okay. It gets, it gets very uh, interesting on this. Uh, each and everyone speaks about unit tests, but I think there are not two people in the world who think the same about this definition. Yeah, no, so. I'm with you. It, it gets worse. Get up, like, what about what we call service level testing? Exactly. You know, the, the, is that actually a component test or is it because you're now going through an HTTP interface to call it as a service uh, and maybe going through the authentication step? Does that make it different? Yes. And the the actual test pyramid of uh, my code said not, um, didn't say, uh, system test, integration test, unit test, it actually say UI service level unit test. Right. So, but nobody I know says something about UI testing. That's why I always say it's a system test, integration test, and unit test. And the funny thing is, um, there's also an anti-pattern, uh, which was derived from uh, the testing pyramid it's a testing ice cone testing ice cream cone right the situation where you have nearly no unit tests but a lot of system tests or a lot of ui tests and a lot of manual tests and that's terrible because you have no idea what your application do until a tester will try it yeah, well, that, that's where sort of manual tests end up taking everything over because it's the only thing that seems to work. That's right. And um, with the, so much system tests, they also break a lot and the people get uh, depressed by that and will not execute them so often. Well, Why, I've also found situations where teams threw away their entire testing framework. They chucked everything out because it was becoming a bigger headache than building the code itself. Yes, testing is uh, has to be. A, testing has a lot to do with trust, trust in your tests and trust in the uh, implementation you did. So if you but, don't trust your tests, then they are they are useless. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And this like, idea of the the you know ice cream cone anti pattern. This is the path to abandoning a test structure. Right. People eventually are just going to give up on it because it's, it's such a mess. That's right. And what I actually see in practice is often I call it uh, the testing uh, Christmas tree where people start, stop thinking about unit tests. They do more integration or component tests uh, to reduce the amount of work they have to do with, with testing. So what they do is they check if data goes into the database or when I create a new user, then the user manager should um, create everything I need for this user and so on. But they don't check... Um, the small parts, they, are, they don't go the baby steps like you would do in TDD. So you right. get um, a small set of unit tests, a lot of integration tests, some system tests, and on top of that, you have, well, the manual testing. Right. And then that's where you see a Christmas tree shape. It, this all comes down to the unit testing coverage. The, you, you're building a pyramid based on a foundation of unit tests. 
usually when you when you see this um, pyramid, you have um, triangles. You right. have it is a large triangle, but in the case of the Christmas tree, um, the bottom of this triangle is smaller than the top, and so you get your Christmas tree. Right, not enough unit tests. That's do, right. Do you pursue this concept of test coverage, trying to get to a hundred percent test coverage on all of the classes? There, I have to quote again Robert C. Martin. He said, "If a manager wants one hundred percent test coverage, he gets one hundred percent. Right, but he will not get any asserts." <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, we've written a test. It doesn't do anything, but that's we've right. A test. It's just for the framework that it says, you, we have 100%. There are a lot of cases where it's quite difficult to get 100% uh, of code coverage. I think there are numbers around uh, 80% which are realistic. Right. Um, in our project, we have around 85%. But we excluded everything what had to do with UI. Okay. Otherwise, we were something around 60, 60%, I think. And there are often situations where you think, okay, I have a small if clause, which is called once in 2,000 times, and now I have to write 4,000 lines of code just to get the setup for the test of this small if clause. <laughs> so that's something I wouldn't do. <laughs> well, it, it also speaks to as you move up the pyramid, these test constructs get so big. With integration tests, you get a high code coverage in a short amount of time where you have to write a lot of unit tests to get the same coverage. Yes. But this coverage of uh, integration tests doesn't say anything about the quality of your uh, tests or your test strategy. There's often used this word... Um, safety net when it comes to testing. I think it was from the book uh, X-Unit Testing Patterns. Tests are often um, described as a safety net. And if you look at the such um, a safety net, you can have um, a mesh which is very tight, so it will hold you in every situation. Right. Sometimes you don't need this uh, granularity. It is also okay if um, your mesh is much larger. This is okay? Yeah, a looser right. mesh. Sure. Things slip through. Sometimes you you just need a loose mesh, and some of these parts or some of the things can slip through it. That doesn't matter. Um, for yourself, if you start testing, it is important how loose or how tight you want your mesh. Um, and based on this, you can decide, do I want to do just test automation or do I want to do test-driven development where you get a really tight um, mesh? And with code coverage, you just say, okay, I have a mesh which will hold me when I fall. But the code coverage doesn't say, it will hold me in every situation. I just have a lot of code which I will run through, but I'm not sure if the functionality is is actually what I need or if it do in every case everything I want. Right. 
This is get back to how we actually can measure the quality of the tests we're building. Um, with unit tests, it is quite easy because a lot of people <laughs> wrote about it and can tell you what what is good and what isn't. Uh, for example, there is this first principle. Uh, first is an acronym, and it says a uh, test shall be fast. F. A unit test shall be fast, so we can execute it very fast, and we can get our feedback as soon as possible. The I stands for independent, or some people would say isolated. Independent means, in this case, um, one test case should not depend on another test case. Right. While isolated means it shouldn't use external resources like databases, web service, and so on. Um, the R in first is for repeatable. For example, if you use random input data, you might get a problem because when your test fails, you usually start it again and then it will be, uh, it will run fine. It will be successful because the input data changed. The test is actually not repeatable in the same way like it was, uh, like it would be with static input data. So, um, if you cannot execute your tests, again and again in the same way, then the test isn't good. Right. Um, the S is self-explaining or self-describing, I think. Mm -hmm. um, that means that when you look into the code of your test, you should be able to read it like a documentation. A lot of people say, um, for example, BDD is like writing um, a living documentation. Automated tests can be like uh, documentation because they tell you if there's something wrong. If you just write your documentation into a Word file or something, it gets lost or it gets old, it gets obsolete, and nobody will ever read it. But when you change something at the code and your um, test fails, then you can look into the test and it should say what is needed to do what you expected, or it shall tell what you expect the application to do in this situation. Right. The T in first is for timely then. If you do something, you should uh, write your test in the same situation or in the same context you do it. Even you do not do test-driven development, you should write your test method um, as soon as possible after you implemented your code. So Absolutely. with TDD, it isn't a problem. You write your test first, and then you implement your code. But if you do the, don't do test first, then you should implement your test after you did your implementation. Otherwise, you are not in the mental context of what you did. And so you might lose some information, or you test something which wasn't actually implemented, or um, something like that. I found that the more minutes go by between the time that the developer wrote the code and tests being run on the code, the longer it's going to take to fix it. And it's literally minutes. You want them to be as close together as possible. That's right. And that's the reason why um, test TDM. That's the reason why TDD is so famous because 
um, you not only write uh, your tests in the same situation when you write your implementation, you get also your feedback in the same situation, in, your, in the same context. You know exactly what you did or what you have to do or what you expected it to do. And if you come later after 10 or three weeks you you do not know exactly why you wrote this line of code or this sure. so you you have to write it as soon as possible so uh, i've sort of been uh sitting in the back wings here but uh i promise you it's just because i really can't speak today um if you had do you have a wish list for testing features in visual studio for the next version I actually have, and I think after this uh, podcast, a lot of other people will have it too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most important part for me is that they remove this sealed from all these attributes right. so we can do our own stuff. The next thing I think is important that we get a good way to create parameterized tests. For example, in coded UI tests, you have the same problem. You cannot use parameters for your test methods. And that's why you have to do a lot of work to just get something simple. Right. Uh, and the third thing I really would love if they would implement something like uh, continuous testing, like it's possible with um, NCrunch. Mm. Even the NCrunch guys wouldn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, very good. Hendrik, thanks for spending this hour with us. I thank you. It was a great talk. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.